Lurkers out there. We are back, your most favorite Babylons of the Third Age Babylon 5 podcast. Um, now with a new episode to uh, about the war prayer. The synopsis of this episode consists uh, of two um, plot lines. The first one is a poet arriving at the station and getting attacked, um, which results in two more problems since it's not the first attack of this kind but um, several more happened before um, all on alien speci species and the uh, second plot line are is about um, two lovebirds from centauri um, going uh, there to uh, help uh, to get help not from um, lando but of Bavir, uh, which is kind of cute yeah, and uh, but before we we dive into this episode, um, we have a nice question um, for our introduction purpose, and this time it is uh, again about food. Yes, uh, you you get fried. We we love food. We you can't see it, but um, we we have to to train regularly because we're eating so much. <laughs> um, and the question in detail is, what is our favorite food we can't get at home? We're either because of the ingredients or because we're just in, uh, unable uh, to cook it ourselves. So uh, maybe, uh, Leila, how about you start with this question? Yes, um, my favorite food that I can't really get at home is langosh, which is a Hungarian street food dish that is just a fluffy fried thick piece of, of dove, basically that is spicy, a bit salty. And then traditionally you just put, without baking it, you just um, put sour cream and cheese on it and whatever you want on top. And it's super good. And the reason I can't get it at home, at home is you need to fry it. I don't have the equipment at home to fry it. And I have eaten langosh in Germany on several Christmas markets and everywhere. And it was just never good. It was crispy. It had too much cheese. They just don't get it right. So I really only can eat the real langosh whenever I'm in um, that makes it very, very special. Then now I have to travel there because I really like to eat this on the Christmas market uh, as well. And if you say it's not good, I guess I have to make a travel to Hungary. <laughs> it just doesn't taste like langosh when I eat it in Germany. So, <laughs> yeah, Alex, how about you? Oh, I'm I'm not so bold to go international. Uh... For me, it's in general Bavarian cuisine, especially Gamknödel and like good potato salad that doesn't just consist of a big hunk of mayonnaise. Uh, I, I'm I'm very fond of the whole sort of eating tradition in the southern parts of Germany, and it's very hard to get these right here because well, it's hard to get the right ingredients and such. Okay, now I'm I'm puzzled that that's what you what you say. Um, I'm. A bit more exotic again uh, for me it's uh, ramen I really love uh, this this Japanese um, soup um, and I tried to make it at home several times um, even with with uh, prepared um, soup uh, that I bought but it never gets the right way so I gave it up and I'm just eating it uh, when I have the chance to go to um, a th an authentic uh, Japanese um, restaurant or, or um, yeah, ramen bar. So, into the episode we go. Um, 
first impressions and yeah, I have to start again. I already see it on your faces. Um, and even though I was uh, teasered that, uh, that this uh, episode contains things that, um, are not up my alley, I have to say I really like this episode. So what are you saying now, Alex? Hmm? I'm I'm just happy that you're not fooled by the episode title, so uh, this is very nice. And I was very curious whether or not you would like this, because once again we have half the episode devoted to big romance plot, and I'm I'm happy to see that uh, this one maybe struck more a chord than than what we've seen of Catherine so far. Yeah, it 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 has a bit of a different taste. I mean, I would would have appreciated if it would not been. Uh some kind of love interest or or some some yeah wait i think we're not talking about the same romance here right alex you are talking about the the centauri kids and you are talking about ivanova's lover right i are we <laughs> i was talking about the the centauri kids but may, maybe the... okay. and you okay okay about, about susan right Yes, yes. Okay. okay. Yeah, I, I, I totally uh, cut that out. Yeah, the, the, the two Satori, they are cute because it, it's this, this, it, it gives off this, this cute little feeling of, oh my God, there are two young people who found each other that's saying, oh, oh my God, you, I, I, you're, you're my world. I want to marry you. But it's not in an, in an overbearing way. It's, it's, it feels still fresh and, and, and yeah young and not this this um thing we we have with with older um couples oh, this sounds wrong I, i'm not sure how to to uh, say what i want to say um the the point is that uh, with with ivanova and her her dude it it's yeah it it didn't work the first time obviously and this this second tries this it feels most of the time kind of wrong for me um, because the people have to change, had had to go through a lot of change, both parties, to make it work then. And that usually is not the case. Um, and yeah, it, 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 it's a bit sad for me to see that it's another romance interest or formal love interest appearing here for the plot. I don't know. Can, can it just be, can't they, why can't they be just friends? Well, why in this episode, <laughs> I will argue that it adds something because there's just an extra level of ickiness about it because they were so much closer in the beginning. Uh, but before we drift off into complete yeah. discussions, <laughs> uh, let's let's not forget about Layla's first impressions. Yeah, first impression. Um, I have to say that when I first watched this, um, I was a bit rolling my eyes, I guess, because I felt like at this point, we don't really have like an overview of what happens on Earth and an overview of all of the political uh, positions that we have. And the only thing that sometimes ends up with art on the ends up with us on the station is that there were some Nazi dudes beating people up. And when I watched that for the first time a few years ago, I was like, "This is so so old school." I guess today they would have they would figure out new ways. Like no one is that dumb. But I. I, I um, yeah, I learned my lesson now that that's definitely how these movements show up um, and how you notice them and how they just surface at some point. 
So yeah, I think this episode really is where it starts to get interesting and it gives us a lot of things that make Babylon 5 later on what it is. So I think it's a, it's one where the first season really like gets some pace. See, this is your first impression years ago when you were young and naive and we didn't have like a major movement of old German nobles trying to reinstate the Kaiser. So, so yeah. I just thought differently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but okay, so I, I guess perspectives have changed and now this feels like a quite poignant episode. Is this somewhat correct? Yes. Okay. I would totally agree on that. It, it, uh, I mean, it's, it's you, you hear these, these arguments they have uh, in this episode and you think this feels way too real for comfort. I love that they literally drop the line, all these aliens are stealing our jobs and this is like... <laughs> 30 years on, it's still a, a slogan that definitely gets you some votes. So it's it, that is beautiful. Um, uh, so what's your first impression, Alex? Um, well, I can remember. <laughs> yeah, my, my original first impression, honestly, I cannot remember. That's that's too long ago. And honestly, when I first was watching Babylon 5, I was watching it mostly on the sidelines while doing something else. I didn't really concentrate on it. So I never I, I never would have bothered to take notes or anything like that. Um, but no, this time around, um, I don't know, it didn't feel as momentous as I remember it being. I, I feel like this time around, I was already paying more attention to sort of what's going on, Earth, uh, happening on Earth. And we already had like some headlines in newspapers on Home Guard. And yeah, it, it, it just felt like, okay, this is a natural continuation of what we've already seen. Um, what gets me every time is the Centauri side plot. I find it so endearing for Vir and actually quite endearing for Londo as well in, in, in some scenes. So, uh, no, I, I really, really like this one. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's not often that he gets to impart any kind of wisdom on the younger generation. that doesn't revolve around killing none. So I'm just very happy that, uh, for one C he had like a slightly even maybe positive outlook on life. So that, that was just nice to see. I totally forgot to mention it, but the Centauri part is one that I also always really enjoy. Yeah. Since you enjoy it so much, why don't we start with that? Yeah, and definitely, definitely includes one of my favorite Londo quotes. I know we've already had a few ones. Actually, at some point, I have to post all of them. I just have to list them. <laughs> Londo said, as long as you can still do it, because at some point in the show, you'll want to stop doing it, I guess. But um, so one of my favorite ones here in this episode was this. What was it? I am... My shoes are too tight and I forgot how to dance, which is where he acknowledges that he knew all of these feelings, that he was young once and that he understands the situation, but he just grew into this position that he has to be to be someone in the empire. I think that's a, a beautiful way to acknowledge I'm old, I've, I've, I've accepted life, but uh, I've been there once and I know how. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's a beautiful sort of personal moment for him, especially with him telling that this is something that he un understands from his father and now he's imparting this to Vir and Vir to his cousin. So it's it's this intergenerational thing and this feels like something that you could even put into the larger scope of Centauri society as a whole. Like I feel like we get a good insight into what Centauri all of them are because so far it's been very limited to Londo's perspective and that's very much this like older, bitter perspective yearning for the old empire. And here we see two young lovebirds who 
honestly seem like they do not care about the Centauri Republic at all. They have bigger concerns. They do not care about the grand destiny of their family and status and title that everything Londo always talks about. They are in love and they want to facilitate that. And we have uh, Veer who is trying to support them in this. So all the younger Centauri that we are seeing in this episode seem to be able to move forward from this like grand vision of destiny that's, that Londo always has, which is a very hopeful note in, in this episode if, if he manages to get this across. And even if it's just what Londo is doing, that he is letting go of his old grievances and uh, feelings and saying, okay, I never got to enjoy myself with love and all that. Maybe I'm going to be able to get them this chance. And, you know, if this is something that we see in a larger scope in the society, maybe this is something that they can use to move on if, if they manage to sort of go from one generation to the next without carrying over all these old sentiments. Actually, I love that scene where, where uh, Lando is not on board yet and where Veer kind of has to convince him to to think about these young ones and where uh, Lando has all of the, the, the portraits of all of his wives and points to them. Like, they are the reason why I'm here. So it's just like, like always on this border of he has to know that he is making fun of himself. He has to know that this is live satire that you can watch, but he's also, yeah, so, so, so strict in it. And I just love that scene. Like, what does he call this wife's pestilence? I don't know. I don't know. Like, Famine, death, and pestilence. Like they are the, the, the deadly sin, <laughs> sins or the, the writers of the apocalypse. Um, and I mean, and in this scene, here's another quote, which might qualify as one of the favorite quotes. Love has nothing to do with marriage, which is very quotable, but also like gives us a very good perspective once again into Centauri society where, yeah, this is, we are in this almost kind of feudalism where, yeah, you marry out of duty and to advance sort of the social standing uh, that your family has. But also, sorry, um, it, it's quite ironic that he says it uh, I mean a few episodes before um, I think it was with the purple files where he wanted to marry the the dancer mm. that that he would have done this because of love and nothing else and uh, here he is stating that love has nothing to do with marriage so I think that's also one of the reasons when uh, he turns around later uh, after um, he is um, kind of reminded um, about this uh, through Mayan. Yeah, I, I think we can wonder, like, how much is his initial reaction to these lovebirds also sort of rooted in his resentment? Like, his love with Adira didn't work out, so now he's sort of damaged from this and at first opposed, but then because of the experience, he can also warm up to it a little bit better because he remembers, okay... This went very wrong for me, but maybe specifically because of that, I should strive to enable this in others. And I mean, especially his reaction and his thoughts of um, on his father with with this shoe quote, um, he manages to rise above this. He's get yes. he's becoming more than the ones before him, and I think that's also quite an um, achievement there, especially in this reflection of I didn't get this but I don't take this as an excuse to um, limit others to to cause pain to others I take this experience and help you to have it better than I had 
And as long as we're talking about memorable Londo quotes, um, the final one that I noted down is when he's in sickbay and uh, the the couple gets attacked and uh, there there's this injury and she wants to stay by the side of her boyfriend and he has this initial reaction of saying, no, no, do not do this because she will be absolutely devastated if it goes wrong, if he ends up dying and she stayed by his side. And I find it interesting that there he still has this sort of, yeah, kind of grumpy disposition about it. Uh, but still, here you can see that there is some some logic behind this that I find uh, somewhat compelling. Like for somebody who has led a life where he's been hurt a, a lot of times, has seen a lot of grief, it makes sense that he would adopt this sort of uh, this sort of outlook. But then he already is at this stage where he seems receptible to the Minbari poet telling him, well, but there's also this belief in love and its healing power and trying to pursue this is something worthwhile. Um, so I, I like that he kind of go, does, does this transition from having a quote where he's entirely opposed to love to having this sort of more reasonable, okay, there is, there is reasons to pursue it, but also reasons to try and stay away from it, to protect yourself from harm. And then he finally comes around. Like there's a nice progression in this. Yes, totally. I also totally love the interaction between the Mambari poet. I forgot her name. Um, and Londo there in sickbay, because I just love how these two sentiments completely clash. Um, that's kind of wonderfully written, I think. And what I also think, um, what you can see here is that um, he knows all of these emotions, and he just learned how to how to live with the way of the Centauri Empire. And I mean. Actually, I think it's not even so, um, uh, yeah, unique because I mean, historically, when you when you think of of of, of human society, I think even in in medieval times, feudal times, whatever, when you were just married for um, as a as a simple uh, farmer, for example, when you were just married to someone who could care for you and take care of you or was good for your family or whatever, and people there were also aware that love was else. People had affairs. People had love somewhere else but got married to but being married was important because yeah who took care of you when you got pregnant who could really feed your children because um that was a big issue and so yeah i guess we always had this how to works try to get as can besides it like even in medieval times you had like attempts for birth control you had it for abortions and whatever it's it was always like that kind of yeah and i find that um interesting to see because the solution, I think, no, that was my point. Sorry, I forgot my point. <laughs> the solution that you see in the end is that finds a way for these two to, to, to get to win time and to get together inside the system. Like he doesn't help them to flee or to go to an outside colony or to move to Earth or whatever. He finds a way how they can get what they want inside of the society and how the system works. And that's what I find very uh, remarkable about the solution of and I mean, you're a bigger expert on, on early modern times than, than any of us, uh, I, I think. But to me, this almost feels like it's very typical for a society that is kind of stuck in this in-between, between the medieval times where it's complete feudalism, where all of these sort of extra measures ex exist and it's fully accepted that marriage and love are separate things. And so it kind of works in that way. And then the completely modern appreciation of saying, okay, no, love is all about like getting married and having this like little nuclear family and such and you get in this like awkward spot in between where none of the two sides are fully supported yet 
um, which reminds me of, of sort of the, the Victorian times where everything gets like even stricter and more taboo and uh, in, in many ways more terrible than it ever was in, in feudal times because there these very rigid systems weren't support uh, weren't enforced in the same way. Yes, totally. It's like when these medieval times actually suddenly have this people that think that they are the first generation that has emotion, that they are the first generation that like protested, that are in love and yeah. It it, it, it it doesn't it does interesting things to a society, yeah. Although I wouldn't say that the Centauri are on that level in like modern, modern Victorian age yet. I think they're only just slowly opening up. They are in a very weird spot in general. Yeah. <laughs> I mean we already established that they're some sort of mixture of different early uh cultures. So I don't think we necessarily uh have to, to um put it in our uh, line of, of time to say that they're at that point or that point just roughly, okay, this aspect, this aspect is fitting in and we'll see how it develops or if it develops at all. Yeah. Anything more on, on Londo in this storyline? Otherwise, I would love to veer, uh, veer a little bit into Veer. Yeah. Sure. Uh, just because I, I find it quite... Obviously, it's very endearing the way that he has to sort of deal with this and confess to Londo what he's done. But I do think it's interesting that we see for the first time, for all the sort of bumbling buffoon that Vir is often portrayed as, he knows how to use his station and he knows that status is important. And at back home, he has managed to like uphold an image of himself as a much more important official than he actually is. And from everything that we've learned about Centauri society, upholding this image is actually much more important than the job that he actually does in terms of his societal standing. So as far as this goes, he's being a very good Centauri in this episode. Like he, or at least up to the point where the whole like house of cards bundles together and then, then he has to like have Londo fix his issues. But uh, up to this point, he's, he knows how to play the political game at least a little bit. That's quite impressive. What I find interesting is first, there is no scolding from uh, Lando when he realizes what Veer did. I mean, he just accepts it and okay, now we have to get the, uh, have to take care of this mess. Um, and uh, a second thing is that later on, um, I'm not sure what it was that he Veer was saying uh, something about the traditions and stuff where. Um, Lando uh, says, oh, you, you've been studying, I'm pr uh, sort of, I'm proud of you. Um, which means he, he, yeah, he, he's observing these things to see, okay, how, how can I handle things? How do I get uh, by with all this? And on the same time, you clearly, um, see that he's distancing himself from these traditions where he can. I mean, especially when he says, uh, where, why can't these two marry because of love? What is What would happen if uh, to the great um, Centauri Republic? So or it's, it's, he's really saying it in a challenging way. I mean, Lando's not really in a position to, uh, in, in a, a mental or, or emotional position to go against this. So uh, maybe he just, uh, or, uh, um, managed to get the right point 
or the right time to uh, exactly say this without consequences um, for him. But I mean, I think it's showing perfectly how um, yeah, capable he is in, in many ways. And I think it's also a very nice point for him to make that it's kind of silly for somebody like the great ambassador of the Centaur Republic to be so concerned about a love marriage happening because I, I think this is something that we very often see where issues are raised about, you know, what kinds of marriage are allowed, what is seen as the moral image of what a family should look like, that this is very often talked about in these things like, oh, if we allow a new kind of marriage, this is basically the downfall of Western civilization right there. And it's like all hanging in the balance. And I love for Vera to point out that, yeah, that's that it's a little bit silly to, on the one hand, like, always go on about these great traditions and then portray them as so fragile that they would be threatened by something like this. So I, I think there's a nice little little sting that he puts there. I mean, if you want to um, put it to a, a sim, put, oh, I try again. If you want to compare it to um, the modern times, the news, newest thing would be um, the the marriage between um, homosexual um, partners. I mean, how how many people out there are and you ruin the the um, the marriage? Uh, and I mean, okay, there's a lot of religious nonsense in it. Sorry for the religious people, but yeah, that's my opinion on that. Um, and and it's it's yeah, it's it's still a thing. It's it's still um a, a, a something uh, that it's that it, that is talked about. And talked about in these terms of life and death for the nation, life and death for the civilization. Like there are always these very strong hyperbole where it just gets so silly, so very fast. Um, but okay, um, anything more on this plot in particular? I don't think it gives more. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I mean, we can uh, we can just uh, go straight to the intersection point where. Obviously, a part of this plot is the attack that uh, is uh, directed against the Centauri, but we start the episode a little bit earlier on where we get the uh, interaction between Vilen and uh, Shalmayan, who is the uh, Minbari poet. Before we jump in there, um, I would like to note that um, what I really liked about this episode, that even though we have two plot lines here, that they intervened um, with each other um, at some point. And so we didn't have this this two things running parallel to each other, but because of the being there at the, uh, at the same place, being on the station, uh, they affect each other. Um, and that I really like that. That, is... that was something a bit, not, not missing, but... Um, I think it, it makes more of, of this two, uh, these two plots and the story itself. See, this is something that I can get into internet arguments about how much uh, different Babylon 5 plots really depend on each other. And for the most part, I, I usually think there are good reasons why two plots are next to each other. And at least thematically, they often mirror each other. But it's absolutely true that uh, both thematically and just in terms of what is actually happening, we have like a very nice... Uh, intersection here on multiple times. I especially like the fact that the side character introduced for the A story, the Mimari poet, 
gets to weigh in on the issue of the Centauri lovers, which is just, yeah, of, of course, she's an interesting character to, to have to have something to say about this. So it's, it's nice that she gets that chance. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think you just really realize how this is one world that is connected because now we have across the species people that share this fate. Um, I really like that that we see that something that happens on the station is relevant for for the whole galaxy for everyone involved. And not even just on the station. Even that things that are happening back on Earth are also having an effect on on Babylon Five, right? Like there is. Uh, we've seen this brewing in the background and now it's finally like coming to a head. Um, what I would throw in now, um, I really liked uh, also that there was uh, our Dr. Ben and uh, our former uh, telepath from The Gathering were mentioned uh, and used as a backstory. So even, even though for whatever reasons there was to... Um, put other uh, actors in there um, they still use this this plot line they still use the characters um, to enrich the story um, and not just let them uh, fall off of uh, the plate um, which I also was really happy to see because that's usually not uh, something uh, happening uh, in, in other series because these people are usually just forgotten if, uh, or pretended they never existed um, and here they even got um, a story why they are no longer there I mean this is a great chance to just sing the praises of the creator uh, uh, one time uh, because obviously it's often praised that Babylon 5 had this big five year plan a story that was planned out in advance that can play out so everything is very connected and such but it is only one half of the story. The other half is that JMS is also somebody who is very, very good at adapting to things, adapting to difficult monetary situations, adapting to limited sets and adapting to staff changes very quickly. And so one of the things that he did, which is uh, something that to this day not every show manages to do, is that for every character he had what he basically talked about as trapdoors. So at any point they can leave the stage and there's going to be a good reason for this and it's going to be a chance uh, usually for them to be utilized in the story or even make a return if that is possible. And this is something that we saw like with Dr. Ben, for example, uh, here very, very clearly where um, not only does he get part of the backstory here, but it also ties into what we've seen already. We've seen EarthGov collect uh, the organic technology because they're interested in this. So of course they would also collect the scientists who have seen a boredom. Like that just falls completely in line with what they're usually doing. Also, you just have to um, have to appreciate what kind of mindset the writer has to always prepare for these cases and always have everything like that ready. You can tell he already had a little bit of experience. With TV, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. The other hand, on the other hand, there are enough people um, who write quite a long time for TV or uh, anything like that, uh, and they are not prepared. So I think that's also something you have to decide on that you will, if there are any problems or occasions where you have to rewrite things, you rewrite it in a way the characters are not forgotten. And I think that's also um, some sort of, of dedication just uh, for, for um, writing a good story. 
a dedication, but I think also a level of humility where you have to just accept, I have a vision of this story, how I want it to play out, and it is not what is going to happen. At some point, outside circumstances are going to happen, and then I can't just hold on. I mean, he could have also just said, no, but I want Takashima to be the second in command, so I will just recast her, and viewers just have to accept this, which often enough happens in, in TV. But though no, he said, okay, so this character is just not going to work out. That's a shame. And his immediately massively changes some of the plans he had for the show. But he just goes with it. And this is something we will see throughout the entire show that the original vision of Babylon 5 looked entirely different, would have been an entirely different show than what we eventually got. And arguably because of all the adversity, we got maybe even a better show than he originally imagined because he was willing to give up on this original vision and do something else. Love the problem, not the solution. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so maybe we could get started talking about this Earth, uh, Homeguard plot, not Earth Force, Homeguard plot. But before we start with Earth, there's one scene I would love to talk about that has nothing to do with Earth, if that's fine. Um, I would just love to hear your thoughts on uh, the very first scene where we see uh, Shamayan and Dylan together, because we don't get much Minbari on Minbari interaction, let alone with Lanier not involved. So I, I, I think it's, it's a nice insight to see just how close these two are. And especially with Dylan being this very high ranking member of society. And then there is a poet who obviously has a similar sort of level of respect bestowed, bestowed upon her and they can be like very casual or even intimate around each other. The first thought was, oh, a girl's night. <laughs> yeah, I miss the pajamas. It just really shows that some things are sorted differently in the Mimbari society than we know that. And actually what I regret a bit about that is that we don't get to see her perform. Because I know that the our uh, writer definitely would have got come around with, with something. There is a later episode where he summarizes in one sentence, or a character summarizes in one sentence, how humor works for Membari and how in contrast it works for humans. So he knows how Membari humor works traditionally. There definitely would have been some great poetry, but sadly we didn't get to see it. And I don't think we ever will, right? At least not from her, no. And uh, it is something interesting to speculate about what Membari poetry looks like, sounds like, from the way that it's talked about in this episode. I always got this impression that it's something very ancient. I'm usually reminded of like the sun myths that you get to hear if you visit like Italy or stuff and they recite like the old uh, old tales there in the original language and such. Um, it, it, it feels almost like this more oral tradition of long, long uh, form poetry. Yeah. But yeah, so we see that a poet and a politician like Dylan is our in a kind of case and a kind of kind of status that they are close and that they have a similar level of respect. That's interesting, definitely. I think the poet the poet here kind of to me looks more like a like a preacher in a positive way. Does that make sense? It does, especially if we learn like we learn what her plan was. Her plan was to go to Earth and share Minbari culture there. So it's almost like a a, a the, the 
the role of a missionary that doesn't have to convert people to his faith, but just actually brings a little bit of culture and exchanges ideas and such. Um, and once again, this is something that would be very interesting to see and something that, from what we've seen so far, Earth might really need right now is like a little bit of influence, cultural influence from outside its own borders because they seem to be getting um, a little bit stuffy in there. Yeah. So let's talk about the Home Guard plot, maybe. I mean, yeah, as I said, I'd always found it difficult that we have this plot that just develops with uh, people showing up and punching it out, uh, punching someone. But I think that's definitely how you see or how you notice on the surface a certain level of, of radicalization that has already happened. Yes, and it would be very interesting to talk maybe a little bit about why this has happened because obviously we know Earth has fought the war against Mimbari and this is something that Sinclair utilizes in this plot later on very much that this is obviously a source of hatred against aliens but then we also see that this is a group that just outright hates everything that is not human so it, it, there, there is this war maybe put forward as an excuse or as a reason why this is but there's definitely also a more fundamental ideology around that just hating the other i mean it if it would be just about the war then technically they would just hate the mimbari yeah from as far as we are at least i know it was humans against mimbari and the rest stood to the side and maybe threw in their their 50 cents but uh that was it um and um so, so the the primary um, target targets would have been Membari, but it's said that um, the ones attacked are prominent aliens in general. Yes. So, and I mean, it's obviously done with um, a bigger um, a, a, a bigger. Plan, conspiracy. Plan, yes. Can we cut that out, please? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> yes, we can, but I will put it up as a special teaser clip uh, for everyone. Ah, uh, yeah, lovely. I hate you. <clears throat> it is obviously done with um, a bigger plan in mind, um, since why would you use prominent aliens for the world to see or the universe to see in this case? And it's obviously done on the station, on Mars, on Earth, um, and what, what, it's, it's six attacks in two weeks. I think that's that's quite a count um, for four attacks um, in such a short time. Yeah, and we see that this is uh, a systemic problem, like something that is not happening just in Babylon 5 because they have a problem there, but no, it is something that is happening all over. And... Uh, yeah, I would love to talk about the plan and also a little bit maybe about the deeper-rooted causes for this because one thing that is reiterated every time in, in the intro is that Babylon 5 is the place for aliens and humans to meet. And uh, I think one of the things that Babylon 5 does really well here is that it explains to us early on that our perspective on the universe is a special one. Most people probably do not come into contact with aliens very often. Most people on human colonies and such have very specific interactions with them, and it's probably very easy to get a 
completely distorted view of these aliens if you are in this more isolated human society outside of Babylon 5. And uh, this then also gives us maybe a little bit of an explanation. Why is everyone so easily on board with Sinclair playing the big racist commander <laughs> where he takes this role like very thickly? Um, and yeah, wh why, why a group like this can radicalize so much? Because just looking at Babylon 5, I, I would argue it it feels like it would be very easy to disprove a lot of the talking points that they're making there. I mean, it's it's quite easy to, to influence people, especially if they actually have no interaction with the other party, um, but just hear stories. And if the stories, no matter how exaggerated they are, uh, if they are told by a person... Um, these people trust they accept it quite easily um if you the closer you are to a person um you usually you're less prone to ask is is, is that true what you're telling me uh and just accept it because you know that person i mean right. the, the other one doesn't have to necessarily have uh, ill intentions just maybe a misunderstanding or even leaving out information because you think, oh, that's that's unimportant and to make the, the story shorter or better or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's that's how things like this um, happen. And uh, on the other aspect, mm, I, I just have to throw in, uh, I read this, I read this on um, a, a public bathroom, <laughs> but I really liked it. Uh, because it's it's simple and still explains every uh, it's in it's in its simplicity explains um, so much. It's uh, was something along the lines of nationalism is when you grow up hating people you never met and being proud of things you never done. And I think it hits so on point. And from this to racism. Because of all this, uh, they take our our jobs as if they if, if they are yours already. Um, I think it's not far. And I also think an important point is we know that this group is not fully um, uh, focused on the Bari, so the war cannot be the only reason. But I think they can still draw a lot of power from the fear that this war has caused because it is still it was only ten years ago and it is a so like a, a collective memory um, humans have that they were almost wiped out. And so everything strange and everything alien that you probably were not that much in touch with yet to um, to, to, to draw this, to, to wake up this fear again, this existential fear of everything that's strange is very easy. And it yeah. comes back exactly to the quote that you just brought up, Mike, being proud of stuff that you haven't done. Uh, Sinclair himself brings us to the point where he says, I fought on the line against the alien invasion that legitimately was threatening Earth. And as far as we know, none of the Home Guard people actually did that. So it is like they view themselves as these like paragons of humanity and guardians against the alien threat, but were never actually the guys that did the heavy lifting when it actually came to that. And from that pos uh, position, I think, then it also becomes very easy for them to say, well, we look at this con we look at this situation and say okay if it was only about uh, about the minbari war why are they also attacking other aliens but to the home guard it might just be the thing well it doesn't matter if it's minbari or if it's centauri aliens invaded earth 
that's the story. And it doesn't really matter to them whether that was a Mindari fleet or a combined fleet of the entire galaxy. And it's this like lumping everyone as one uh, that that makes this very easy. Yeah, because it's it's different, it's unknown, so it's dangerous, and we should hate it. That's that is where it, where it's come where it gets down to. Yeah, because everything that is unknown is, is I mean, why if you if you look back in, in in history, that's why a lot of people got uh, had to face hate and and uh, everything uh, along the this line. Because they did something and others didn't understand. Um, maybe a few did, but the most just couldn't because something like inventions or something um, was never there. And yeah, that that how how uh, things develop here. Yeah, that. I mean, it is it is Ivanova's. Another from the past who also wasn't at the war, I guess. Um, mm. If I remember correctly, they split up because she wanted to join Earth Force, and then yeah, something like that. She she's talking about going to to um, Io, uh, one of one one moon of one planet. I'm I'm not sure where yeah, Io. It's it's like uh, a major colony in the solar system that they have. And then they broke up. Yeah, so that's kind of like. Yeah, I, I I kind of think that 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 is even more that also bring, brings in your last point, Micah, because um, when the war started and and someone like Susan Reed or someone like Sinclair or whoever else decided mm -hmm. to to serve, decided to join the military, decided to do anything, I mean you could also I I think we see that a lot. You can also when a war starts do other things, but just deal with the situation, deal with the problem, face the reality in any kind it can be like any kind of other social work that is needed whatever and um um that that is um a way to adapt to the situation into false reality as it is and these home guard people um characterized through this person from Ivanova's past i forgot his name um malcolm malcolm someone like malcolm actively decided not to do that so this strange and this fear became like this this phantom, basically, because it was never really encountered. It was just like it was just uh he, he didn't actually actually act anything according to that situation at that point, as far as we know. Um so yeah, what you just said, I can imagine that then there is a lot of hate and a lot of skepticism uh developing towards anyone who was able to do that, towards anyone who was able to um um, act and to 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 go to war or to help in other situations. Also, when he was working with aliens now, because it is uh, it is uh, facing uh, a reality that people kind of didn't ever really accept. And if we are talking about Malcolm, I think this is also the point where I do genuinely think there is some merit to him being a former lover of Ivanovas, just to bring home the point that when we are talking about Home Guard, we aren't talking about some like obscure group of weirdos that have been sitting in their basement uh, too much on the internet and like getting radicalized that way. No, these are people that... That's a motorcycle. These... Thanks. These are people that have been part of our characters' lives, that our characters even had intimate relationships with without ever getting to the point of fully 
like noticing how how radicalized these people might become. So we aren't talking about this this group of of, of space Nazis as um other factional. These are part of humanity, and this is what makes them so concerning because this is also what allows them to make friends in high places, which is emphasized very much in this episode that as bad as these people are on their own, as much of a threat that they pose, these visions of grandeur that they have of like a grand plan to have mass assassinations and stuff like that are only possible because there are people on the inside. There are people as part of the military and such who are willing to support this or at least look the other way when it happens. And I also think that it has a special tip of nostalgia that it was a lover and not a friend because I think they were very young when they were together. They must have been in their early 20s, probably. Yeah. And so it's like, it has a special pain to it when someone that you were that nostalgic with, that you can be that nostalgic with, someone that you spent your, yeah, fragile years with, basically, and you meet them later on and you realize you had your little difference there. But now you are like universe apart, basically. Like now they became really the very thing that you fight, that you are against. I guess that has a special, a special intensity to it because you were lovers, and ten years later you you basically are on two different sides of love, possible terms. And that kind of really shows in a very emotional way, I guess, what happens to a society when something like such an Nazi movement takes over. I had that. My uh, very first boyfriend, years after I was together with him, joined a far-right party in Germany, which is like my biggest nightmare. Um, so I find that very nicely written and always touches me very personal that you just see a person and you're like, okay, we had our differences, we had, we had our different opinions and so many things, but now you're like my personal enemy. Like, you, 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 and I love everything want to fight against and that always touches me very much and i mean this is something that of course it, it has this nostalgic twinge to it that this is obviously painful to to have in your past but then it will also massively like sort of damage your own self-perception right like you at least somebody like ivanova who says in the end i never knew you Obviously, she doesn't seem like somebody who believes in people changing all that much. So to her, it's immediately this this question, okay, if I was so wrong about this guy, how can I ever trust my own judgment again? Like, I obviously am a very poor judge of character at this point, which yeah. I, not everybody subscribes to this, but at least the way she deals with this, that she says, I need to be there when, when he's arrested. I, I need to tell him to his face that I never knew him, that it was never real seems to me like she's kind of trying to establish for herself like my perception back then must have been fundamentally wrong because somebody just doesn't turn uh, that corner that that must have been always there yes i mean definitely at that point where she was involved in in killing someone and, and attacking and murdering people that is something where i also understand that i mean with my friend in my past i just said okay we were 16 and then i realized you were dumb and never grew up because he so scars for us they know he never killed someone um but yeah at that point i definitely get that because yeah i think it's kind of kind of um you have to have a certain level of 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 of, of um of, of evilness inside if you accept another person dying or helping another person dying i guess so there i completely get her I mean, it's it's always a difference if it's um, done in, in, in a situation and in, in an effect um, reaction. 
um, or if it's something where you plan it, where you say, okay, this person has to die and I will need this, 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 and I will do it this and that way. Uh, that's, that's a, I think that's a different kind of human person being, uh, you have to, to be, to, to go that far. Absolutely. Should we talk about the way that the home gut is dealt then? Because we have this entire second half where Sinclair kind of makes this plan, uh, finds out that Malcolm is somebody from Evarva's past and they then utilize this to kind of go with the idea, okay, let's get, um, uh, let, let, let's get close to them. Although before we do that, we talked about already how this is a very poignant episode, how it actually manages to hold a mirror to the, the modern recurrence of these kinds of issues really well. And this is something that Babylon 5 isn't generally praised for. But especially because this is usually a strength of the show, I, I would like to talk very briefly at least about the one scene of this episode where I feel this doesn't hold so true. And this is um, right around the midpoint of this plot where uh, the attack on the Centauri has happened and we get this one scene of, well, they call it a mob that is being churned on by Jakar, who is giving this big speech of humans are investigating human crimes against aliens. Obviously, they have been arrested. This is an outrage if... A Nan gets attacked like this, then there's going to be a, a big violent outburst against this. And I just would love to hear your thoughts on this because out of everything that the episode does with this premise, I feel like this is the weakest link. Why? Um, mainly because I think with a lot of elements, this show is very good anticipating how these issues come about and how society reacts to them. But I feel like what we've seen in the past decade or two is that, yes, these kinds of issues do usually result in there being protests or even riots in the streets. And it's good that the episode acknowledges this. Like, this isn't just some, like, fun crime case for Garibaldi to solve, but this is something that has ramifications on the station. But then this confrontation between the police force, the authorities... And uh, the, the people that are in the streets, I feel like it's framed in a very simplified way and also resolved in a very simplified way where they kind of say, okay, Jakar, let's just assume that this was a big misunderstanding, go home, and then everything is fine. And I think from all the examples that we've seen, whether it's protests around climate change, protests around uh, reform in France or protests around uh, issues of racism in America, we've always seen that you cannot deal with the people that actually go take to the streets in this way. Like, it doesn't usually end with them shaking hands and saying, oh, this was a bad misunderstanding, let's go home now. Usually there is some level of escalation there, and I feel like the episode just kind of falls short of showing that and paints a very simplified picture of, of what these consequences would be like. And I'm mainly focusing on this here because I think Later on, the episode. Uh, later on, the show has bigger and better examples of of showcasing this. So I think this one just sticks out for me as one of the lesser ones. Yeah, I, th I think um, I get what you mean. It it feels too soft. Um, what's what's happening there on both sides? Yeah. Um, I think what is a bit of a problem there is that uh, that that Jakar is standing uh, up there, 
because we don't know about the the former attacks and obviously there was no Narn um, attack. So it kind of feels wrong having him up there, um, even though I'm, I'm not sure if I saw that right, but I think when Jakar um, first talks to to Sinclair after the attack, um, where he's something uh, talking like, "Ah, oh, I I have no love for for the Mimbari and their their poetry, but um, I think I I'm not sure if I saw right, but it seemed to me like you had a bit of a teary eye <laughs> in in this scene. So like he he was actually sad about uh, the poet being attracted because maybe he really liked the poetry or whatever was the reason. Kind of felt felt like uh, that um, in that moment, um, but still it feels wrong because we don't have an emotional connection there, um, and therefore it feels a bit fake when he stands up and uh, at the front of the the crowd and trying to to heat them up, and also they seemed a bit too calm. Maybe it was because there were were not enough. Um, people, not enough actors, but it feels too, too, yeah, not enough in in many ways. Yes, I think that also adds up to the impression that I had at first when I watched the episode the first time years ago, and I felt like, okay, now we have some electric cars standing up there and just um, stating that the staging this protest, but it feels a bit like. I really, I read, like, I read in a book for social studies that, okay, then there must be a protest and it doesn't feel like there's much behind it. And at that point, at least the episode doesn't show that trust, doesn't give that trust. Yeah. What I will say, Jakara has been known to have a big appreciation for women of all species and he has been known to sing very recently. So I think there is some validity to this, that maybe he is a very big fan of, of this poetry. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, I agree completely with both of you that the fact that it is Jakar, who not so long ago has been this conniving villain and has been very opportunistic, and because we don't get confirmation that there have been non-attacks, it kind of creates this question, is he even genuine in anything that he's saying, or is he just utilizing this op opportunity to sort of put himself in a leader position, which is kind of odd because... In terms of what he's actually saying, he does have a point, or at least he would have had a good reason to be suspicious of the way that humans are dealing with this issue, because in general, Earth Alliance seems to be going this route of maybe not caring so much about alien murders on, on stations like this. And so I think this just creates an uncomfortable tension. And I mean, he has a point that humans alone probably should not be the one investigating it. Like... That definitely brings me back to a point that I've brought up so often that I think in the next episode we're going to discuss, I'm going to bring it up even more, that we have this attempt of an international coalition in our intergalactical coalition in this early stage, but we have no um, institutions yet that can actually reassure this. So we don't. We would need here really like um, uh, an independent uh, force that can take over. Yes. Like something like 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 a higher court or something like the heart or something, and we don't have that yet. So it's like which one of these nations has like the right to investigate it on their own? Not really. They all have to work together, and that's not established. Yeah, and I think for me this is also what kind of makes the resolution to the rights. And because, like you said, 
they all seem a little bit of calm. And I think this also then undersells if you have these like rising tensions with uh, with these like extremist group that are coming about and people are protesting against that. It is unfortunately often the case that these protests also become in and of themselves a problem. They can become violent, they can become damaging, which then also becomes damaging to any kind of genuine cause trying to deal with these issues. And this then leads to these uh, the, these confrontations also with the state that, that Garibaldi here represents. And by not having any of that, it kind of yeah neglects a, a big source of conflict that I think would be worth exploring a little bit more. And Obviously, like this is probably not the last time we're going to have uh, a, a, an opportunity like this. Just in this uh, specific instance, I feel like it falls a little bit short. Which isn't to say that I don't love uh, Jakar up on the pedestal preaching, because uh, as usual, his performances are really, really compa- uh, like really passionate here. So that's that's always good to see. Do we have more on the home guard? I think how Sinclair deals with it, because we should not forget Sinclair once again goes himself in the middle of the writing mob, puts himself there, and his solution is also, I am going to pretend I'm a Nazi, and I am going to single-handedly burn all the bridges with alien ambassadors for the single purpose of bringing down this one criminal, which is a bold plan to say the least. If this ambassador that they basically used as a, I mean, that was captured, yeah, then uh, really had these these fearful minutes of not knowing what happened, what what was going to happen, and if if, if Sinclair would uh, uh, save her, I would have liked to see them making up at some point to see some kind of. They will have some difficult meetings after this, I presume. Yes. Yes. Certainly. And I mean, he's he's burning bridges with with everyone there. I mean, okay, cautious. I mean, I was surprised he he appeared. Um, but on the other hand, he's set, uh, cautious out of the picture. I mean, he's saying we take no interest in the affairs of others. Where I was a bit puzzled because that's technically the job of an ambassador. But okay. Um. He's and... also saying this while watching on his TV Earth History. Like, very clearly he's having yeah. interest, just not in what is happening right now. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, the, the others that are present in, in this uh, moment where Sinclair says, yeah, the investigation is over. Um, the, I, I don't know, but honestly, normally they would have his head. I mean, they have. He has nothing. He is not apologetic, and and, and even even a love to to a certain degree, um, and dismissing they them just like that, with nothing, and they are still uh, harmed, aliens harmed, um, people, and he's disregarding this with everything he's got. And I, I mean, that's... the station is not blown up. Is everything <laughs> that that's missing there? I think what is very telling here is not only how boldly he does this, but also that it works. That the other ambassadors look at this reaction from an Earth commander and say, yeah, that 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 sounds about right. This is something that an Earth commander would do. And also that uh, the, the home guard looks at this and says, yeah, that, that sounds like something an Earth commander would do. So it, ju- it just gives us an insight of 
what the average officer of Earth Force probably is like, that this is something that they accept as uh, on face value. And uh, like Leila just mentioned, it tells us also like how little of an actual international cooperation there is in this station. At the end of the day, this showcases no Earth runs the station. And for the most part, if Earth says the um, investigation is over, then it's over. And the other governments can't really do anything about it, save for blowing up the station, which luckily they are not willing to do so easily. But very clearly, there isn't much of, of a middle ground there. And that is like a massive flaw just kind of unveiled here. Yeah, and I mean, what will, I mean, you already said it, what will happen after that? I mean, yes, okay, he is doing this because he wants to get the culprits, but are they really okay with this? So how you can, you can lie to me and, and treat, treat me like, like shit just to get this done? I mean, I if I was in that position, I would say, okay, maybe this time I'm not uh, going to punch a hole in your face, but the next time you'll do it differently. Because, I mean, yeah, there's no respect at all, actually. And especially because, I mean, what does this mean to the other ambassadors? At the end of the story, they can say, ah, now I understand Sinclair is actually a good guy. He had this elaborate ruse because he had to do it this way. Fine, even if some ambassador is completely understanding of this, this still only tells us, okay, now they might have sympathy for Sinclair, the person, but definitely not anymore for Earth Force, the organization, because it, even if they give Sinclair every benefit of the doubt, what they are left with is seeing there is one good man in an organization that is so corrupt or so undermined by, by its like xenophobic uh, structures that he had no other choice than lying to us to get his point across. So in terms of actually forging diplomatic uh, relations between Earth as a faction and the rest of the galaxy, this must be a massively damaging event, even if people are like understanding enough and kind enough to say, okay, what Sinclair did, I, uh, did, I can forgive. Yeah, I agree. In this case, should we go to the end to the shootout? Because this early on in the show, a shootout is definitely how almost every issue gets resolved. Yeah, and Sinclair in the middle of it. But at this, I mean, when, when the mob was where he uh, happened, when he stepped in there, that was stupid. But uh, I think in this situation, he didn't have much of a choice. I mean, it, it was um, to, to get the hook working, he had to be the bait. Uh, and therefore, it's not that bad that he's in this situation. Especially because this time he's not running into the fight headfirst in full combat gear with his gun. In this situation, it's more like, okay, I am going to be in the place where the fight breaks out. But as soon as the shooting starts, my main goal is getting into cover, hunkering down and keeping the ambassador safe. And then Garibaldi and his security team are coming in and actually securing the situation. So... As like, if he is going to be involved in a firefight, this is much more in line with what I would expect the commander to do than anything else. Certainly, yes. <laughs> that was what, what one would expect. But I'm always thinking at the end is when we see all of them arrested and they are arrested and being sent to first prison ship and uh, being sent back to Earth, is that at this point it may not be completely clear 
but already here I wondered into what kind of political climate are they being sent back? Like, will there even be a trial that gets them a real punishment? Like, um, these, this group is, 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 is earning influence and is earning friends in, in big places. Can we even be, be reassured that they treat them like they deserve to be treated? Like at this point, it's at least not completely clear to me anymore. I mean, what I will say is we have seen uh, a headline in the universe today of like big, like leaders of pro-earth organization being arrested at some point. So there's definitely still a part of the earth justice system that locks people like this up. I don't think they're going to go out there unscathed, but I mean, we, we definitely learn they do have friends in high places. Somebody gave them this very high end earth equipment that they are not supposed to have. Now, personally, I doubt that any of these guys are important enough that somebody is going to not simply deny their involvement. Uh, but who knows? It is definitely not unthinkable that somebody bails them out very quickly. What I could think of is that they are treated uh, as, as criminals, have a trial and are sent to prison. But I could Im imagine that they get uh, freed or there's a breakout and or something like that. That would be the way I would anticipate it um, at this moment, I think. And they are definitely martyrs for the rest of the organization. I mean, they talk about this, you know, big plan they have for mass assassinations. Although I have to say for me, this legitimately always sounded like the plans for a coup that's like uh, German organizations trying to reinstate the, the, the king and stuff have like very, very small, like fringe groups that might have a, a seller with weapons somewhere, but that have no chance of actually pulling anything off. But it, it, it like, it didn't feel like there is a legitimate, like big conspiracy going on, but there were still other cells in other places. We don't know how many assassinations in the end of the day actually take place. But there is a bigger organization out there, and I don't think we can assume that in every place where they were active, they're going to be so thoroughly caught as they were here. So there's definitely still part of them out there, and they're going to look at this branch that went to Babylon 5 and failed, and then they can immediately say, yeah, of course they failed on Babylon 5 because there's all the aliens there. So clearly they had help. And so what assassinations always reminds me of is that uh, a few, not so long ago, like a year ago, I came across a really weird podcast from some um, um, COVID denial conspiracy theorists from uh, Southern Germany and Austria who were like, yes, I was at a protest yesterday and there were like 12,000 people and they had no masks and we are such a movement and we are going to change the world and nobody is going to stop us. And I've never heard of those guys ever again. And that's really like, like, yeah. <laughs> That I'm sure it's actually what that reminds me of. Like, they are definitely a problem, but they also sometimes feel like extremely bigger. Like, we are going to change the universe tomorrow. I mean, to cater to our US audience, it, it feels very much like the Q conspiracy expecting mass arrests to happen like any second now, like just a few more days away. Many, and this is like where exactly the same language as is used in this episode once again comes back. Like, very high profile targets are gonna get arrested and taken out, and uh, like once again, exactly the same rhetoric just comes back uh, with a slightly different flavor there. So, yeah, there, there's definitely a sense of we are dealing with like small fish here, 
but it is a problem that they have some kind of backing from within Earth Force at some point. Because whoever had access to this, like, prototype stealth suits and stuff is obviously not on the same level. Uh, but we also have to say we don't know if the branch on the station is cut out entirely. I mean, there could still be some, well, let's say sleepers um, on the station um, that stayed out of this this action um, and yeah, are, are there for, for further instructions or anything or just to, to get information. And I mean, what we've seen also is in this very episode, there are a lot of people who just sympathize with this organization who aren't part of it yet, but are potential recruits who will look at all of this. And there are people who have been attacked by aliens and retaliation for the anti-alien attacks. So people got radicalized as part of this entire thing. And yeah, there's definitely going to be a new ground. Like whenever Home Guard uh, would try sending somebody new there to find a bunch of new recruits, Babylon 5 right now is probably a pretty, pretty good source to go to. And I mean, there are a lot of people who what, what, what was all uh, also uh, voiced in this episode who just don't care. Yeah. No, and I mean, that is, I, I think that's even more scary part of this because um, there's no resistance or the resistance is not noticeable. Um, but also with all the violence you see there, I always feel when um, actually Garibaldi says that, that um, a few uh, and most of them just don't care. When you see how many people are beaten up and how that actually shakes up the situation, it's like, <laughs> but maybe they will start caring if someone is just the right person gets beaten up. So there's also a level of this radicalization that, you know, the more people get hurt, the more people suddenly care, but then also tend to care in a way that is contraproductive. I mean, here it comes back once again to what uh, I think, Mikey, you said this about Sinclair's big speech at the end of uh, of an episode to the reporter where he was talking about how important it is to go to space because otherwise the legacy of humanity is going to be forgotten. So we are in the climate where people back on Earth and in, in this universe, it's very much the case that like the bulk of human population is still on Earth, has never been to space, hasn't hasn't seen any of this. Many of them are openly questioning, should we be going to space at all? Many of them are still of the sentiment, ah, let's just stay on this planet and deal with our own problems. So if Sinclair is inclined to give a speech against this kind of sentiment, it kind of gives you an idea where the majority of people who do not care are at mentally. And if they are not caring about space even, just for humanity's expansion's sake, they are not going to care about aliens at all and whether or not they are threat or not. They're, they are just, this is so far removed from their daily reality that this is just not going to factor into their day-to-day decision-making. So if they hear, oh, there's an ant, there's a xenophobic uh, group in uh, of, of people on Earth, most people will look at it and say, well, there's no aliens here on Earth, so why is that a problem? Like, this, what would this even affect in this situation? Okay, so at this point, just smoothly, let's go into the tapestry because we've talked a lot about the recurring themes of this episode again, and this is something that we love to do on this podcast. We look at Babylon 5, and it is not a 90s show. It is not a show that puts ball down the reset button every 45 minutes, but it's also not Breaking Bad. It's not a show that has like one through-line narrative like a more modern show might have. And so we love looking at 
the themes, the character points, the small tidbits that weave all of these episodes together into this big tapestry that JBS created. A lot of these things we already talked about. There's one thread from early on in the show that I would love to pick up because at one point, Mikey, you asked, will we see Kosh trolling again? And I think we saw a brilliant instance of this because he gets asked, what is this screen that you're looking at? And Kosh's answer is, what it is, is efficient. And then he just shuts off and will not answer another word. And that is so playful for this like ancient alien entity to do. It's beautiful. At the same point uh, time though, we see him look on his screen on Earth history and some of these pictures are wildly disturbing. Yeah, I, th I think there was there was a, a, a cut open uh, snake. Uh, I, uh, it was so changing so quickly, but yeah, that that uh, burned in my memory. Why would you go? Why would you look at the picture of a dead cut open snake? There is also a lot of black and white imagery of what looks to be both world wars. There's the moon landing there, which is one of our finer moments, but in general. If I had to try and make sense of this beyond him just being an internet troll and making fun of Sinclair for even trying to ask him for help, um, maybe this is him like sort of checking the clock again. Ah, is it time for humans to be Nazis again? Like it, it feels like he's sort of reminiscing about human history and uh, definitely like highlighting that everything we see, we see in this episode isn't just here to like point a finger at anyone in particular. No, no, this is just acknowledging this is part of what human history is. And no matter where in the world you are watching the show, this is going to resonate because it's part of everyone's history to some degree. You said that very beautiful. Are there any other things uh, of this episode that either felt to you like they picked up stuff from the past or things that maybe point towards the future of where the show might be going? I think we uh, already mentioned uh, a lot of things in our discussion. Um, I mean, there is the, the uh, recurring of the characters from The Gathering uh, that are picked up again. Um, I, oh, I'm trying to get everything together. It's uh, so much right now. I mean, one thing uh, we already talked about a lot is Sinclair and especially Sinclair's experience on the Battle of the Line. and. We didn't get anything more on sort of the mystery with the hole in his mind here, but I think it's interesting how quickly he was able to tap into this to kind of pull out this idea of, ah, only a dead alien is a good alien. It seems to me like this isn't a sentiment that he himself ever believed, but he probably has known a lot of people who served on the Battle of the Line who might have fallen into these kinds of sentiments, or at least he has a good enough understanding of how other people perceive the Battle of the Line so it seems to me like this is something that he's dealt with before, and this is why he's, it's so easy for him to also utilize this to his own advantage, which... I would certainly say that he, to a certain degree, um, experienced this from other soldiers, officers, whoever was involved in the war, because that's a normal reaction at a certain point, that if you're so deep into war, it's, it's really a tough thing to make the differentiation and not just see everyone as an enemy. Absolutely. And I mean, we already criticized him a bit for jumping into the fray again, but 
if we are having this this criticism of him and saying, well, why isn't he dealing with this hero complex? Why isn't he like properly dealing with the trauma from this battle of the line? These might be exactly the reasons why, because he's so busy not being, uh, not falling in line with this kind of sentiment. This is already making massive progress on his side. Like he is doing things with that, and he's just not pushing all the way through, which is fully understandable if you just get this glimpse of how much pressure there is, especially how much pressure there is, obviously from the rest of human society, of what he should be. I think if he is running around on Earth, and maybe this is one of the reasons he is on Babylon 5, if he's anywhere else, he's probably going to be constantly treated as this like great, brave war hero who banished the alien threats and not having to deal with this, it's clear why he wouldn't be able to deal with any more personal issues that come from that. Yeah, and on the other hand, now he has the uh, pressure from the alien side uh, on, on the... Uh, station which uh, doesn't leave much time uh, on solving personal problems yeah traumas one thing from the past uh, that we never put on the tapestry specifically but i what is just once again a nice parallel i think is during the attack of, of on ragesh 3 we saw the one instance where londo tried to unite all of the aliens under the cause the nan are aggressive the nan are a threat we should all band together and form a coalition against their aggression. Which, as we've seen so far, is a rare occasion that anything unites all of the alien races. And here we saw the parallel of what this looks like when Jakar tries doing this, where he also tries to rally everybody behind him. And it's a rare occasion where we see both of these ambassadors not just care about their own people, but try to utilize actually the fact that this is a station where more alien species are together, and try to form any kind of interspecies uh, relationship, even if it's just for their personal gain. Yeah, and, and it, it, I mean, it, it almost works because it's the humans who are the, the enemy in, in this situation, yeah. which is since not because of the war, but because um, they are the newbies in, in this um, constellation. And therefore, I think it's it's easier um, for the others to come together because it's the enemy they know. Absolutely. And with this in mind, looking a little bit to the future, one question I would love your speculation on, if you have any, is um, we've now seen a lot of examples of Earth caring just about Earth, of reasons why a lot of people might be very apprehensive against aliens, and reasons why people who aren't openly apprehensive against aliens might just not care about aliens at all, then why did humans build Babylon 5 in the first place? Like, where did this come from? If we have so many reasons and so many movements, at which point was Earth in this position of actually seeking out this connection to aliens, and how did Earth get into this position? Well, first of all, I think there were a few people, a few smart people, a few wise people having the um, yeah right thoughts, um, being that if there are others even outside of Earth, you can't just shut yourself out of this. You either interact with them or they will come and interact with you. And if you don't do your part, they will dictate you in the worst case, 
what you have to do. So uh, so it has to be on both sides. Um, and that's the reason I would think this was built. So um, then you are still sort of hopeful that even on Earth, there is this sort of counterpoint to what Holmgard represents, like a group of people who actually consider this. I'm not sure if they're still there, but I think there at least were there. Okay. Because otherwise you wouldn't get a project like this. I mean, of course, there were surely people who were uh, promoting this because of, I don't know, money, power, um, and, and, and things like this. But I think there was also people just doing the right thing. Or at least I hope there were. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm just very really happy to hear this because, you know, there are a lot of, of just science fiction universes out there where even Earth is very monolithic, very dystopian or utopian. And so this, this would create here a situation where Earth just has a few sides. It is quite kind of in this balance where it could tip, tip one way or the other. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not a fan. I mean, utopians and dystopians are interesting um, stories to, to play with ideas. Um, but they, yeah, come, for me at least, short in certain ways. Um, that's way too big to elaborate here. Um, so I'm always a fan of both sides because one doesn't can't uh, exist without the other. Uh, and it's, at least from my point of view, the smartest um, way doing things to show both sides um, and not just going with one thing because, yeah, life doesn't work like that. I completely agree with that. Okay, then the last thing before we get to our outro question and such, now that uh, Leila isn't here because for her that's not interesting, there's one last point I would love to talk about because we've made this connection before and I don't know about you, but whenever I see this episode, I think of Ashley in the Presidium talking about how she can't tell some of the aliens from the animals. Like Mass Effect has exactly the same theme of Humanity goes to the stars, fights a war against the Turians, almost gets wiped out and then becomes part of this, like, galactic community. And now we have space racists who are very much apprehensive against any aliens because they have experience in this war and this, it isn't that long ago. And so I just, I'm, I'm just wanting to know, does this kind of peril feel uh, like pop up the same way for you too? Or uh, does it feel different? Uh, is it interesting? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, we, we already uh, made a few uh, or, sh or already found a few similarities um, for, for those um, listening in. Uh, we already were thinking of making uh, some, some Mass Effect uh, Babylon 5 memes because they just felt uh, so fitting. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally see this here too, because I mean, it, it's the same conception and it's, it's a lo logical, um, occurrence. And I, I mean, you have this always in, in history when there was a war, when there was some crucial, uh, things happening that you have this, this fractions that break off, uh, and do, do something, uh, the, the normal people would, th uh, would think a totally crazy thing. Um, so yeah, it, 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 um, fits there perfectly. 
I mainly bring it up also because for me Mass Effect is one of these instances where it isn't purely utopian or dystopian, where it kind of threads this balance. And um, honestly, every time I rewatch this episode now, when Sinclair gets into the role of um, uh, of evil Sinclair, of racist Sinclair, I kind of see like the renegade option quick time event popping up at the right side of the screen because in Mass Effect this was much the same way. If you picked enough renegade options, Shepard could become slightly anti-alien in, in his sentiments. So I, it just felt like, okay, this is just a different dialogue tree that Sinclair is picking from. Yeah, I can I can see how, how Bioware would do this. I have to admit, I never played the bad side because I just can't play bad characters. Like, no matter which game I play, I can't play the bad version because I always feel bad. <laughs> it's also, I feel like the Renegade options in Mass Effect are so much less consistent like it they they tried very hard but at some point like it just very much clashes that you have this character who is bent on saving the galaxy and keeping his team alive but also is the ruthless guy that doesn't care about anything like it's just it's, it's a nice toy and it makes for some funny interactions but i don't think as like a full-on gaming route it it really holds up uh, so, yeah, but, but that's, you know, maybe at some point we will have a Mass Effect spin-off of this podcast where we just go into all of these details and have like a playthrough of Mass Effect 1 as Sinclair, just always choosing the most heroic <laughs> Paragon option possible. That that could be fun. Um, but for now, uh, let's think quickly about a community question. We don't have a big poll or something that we would have to talk about uh, right now, especially because we talked about some of the Centauri questions before. Um, but do we maybe have a question that we would like to pose for our uh, community today? I mean, just after this this small talk, um, my question would be, uh, do people have a favorite future portrayal of humanity, be that utopian, be that dystopian, or something in between? Yeah, I think we can go with that. Okay, with this much enthusiasm, um, I will just keep this version in, and uh, yeah, then we can go to the outro. Uh, do you want to take us out? No, you can do this. Okay, yeah, I, I have gathered some experience. Um, by the time this episode comes out, everybody is hopefully already going to know this, but we were part of the League of Non-Aligned podcast who did a special event for uh, the animated Babylon 5 film, The New Road to, uh, The Road Home, that came out where for, I think, two and a half hours we talked about everything that happens in this movie, uh, went through it scene by scene, timeline by timeline. It was very, very, very fun, very great honor to be part of it as well. And so we will definitely have linked this uh, in all our social media channels. And if you're interested to hear more from us, um, we have social media channels, Twitter slash X, uh, Facebook, Instagram, where we are always active posting behind the scenes stuff, uh, little questions that came up, um, bits and bobs of our discussions here that warrant further discussion and we are very happy for any kind of input that you want to give us you can find us on all these channels and everywhere you find podcasts at uh, the third age podcast yes and um when you when you give us um a comment we really we're really really happy to read anything um what crosses your mind um, but also if it's just um, a like, um, a share or anything like that, we're really, really happy um, to see that um, because 
only if you tell us we know if we are doing a good job or if we have to improve on something. That's also something you can write us if you have anything where you think, ah, that is that have you done good, but that you could do a bit more uh, about that. Um, please tell us, otherwise it will stay the same. Yes, uh, and yeah. exactly to this point, we already talked about it last week, but um, yeah, we, for example, we, we uh, liked getting the input on how long of discussions um, episodes uh, people prefer that it's like around the one hour mark but we also very much appreciate people commenting to us that we should really just take as however long we think we need to talk about these episodes and ultimately of course that's what we are going to do as you can probably see by the timeline of this video right now um, but yeah we, we just very much encourage it uh, just to see that people are involved and are interested in what we're doing so we are very excited to See you um, next time when we are going to talk about um, the sky full of stars, which is going to be a very interesting episode, especially because I think a lot of threads that we picked up on this episode are going to go straight through there. Then uh, we hope you had fun uh, listening or watching us in this episode and hope to see you next week. <laughs>